Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What's up, Internet? Welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardwar. And I'm deputy editor of news Nathan Ingram. Hey, Nate. This week, we'll be talking about a bunch of different cool AI things. AI put me in a South Park episode. We'll be talking about all that. And also, uh, one of our writers has been writing about digital immortality, which is basically powered by AI, too. So stay tuned for all that, folks. And also stay tuned to the end of the episode. We'll have a chat with the director of They Clone Tyrone, a new sci-fi movie hitting Netflix that stars John Boyega and Jamie Foxx. And uh, it is a lot of fun. So stay tuned for all that. As always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. Drop us an email at podcastandgadget.com. And again, our live streams, which typically occur Thursday mornings, are on hiatus for now for the summer, but we're hoping to bring them back. Let us know if you really like them. Drop us an email at podcastandgadget.com. Now on to our first big AI story. This week, folks, I visited the town of South Park, Colorado. Not, Not really. It was AI. AI put me in South Park and created a whole version uh, of an episode with me, a digitized version of my voice. It built a story around a prompt that I provided, and uh, it's all pretty wild. That came from the simulation. They're developing a technology called Showrunner AI that is going to allow creators to do things like this, to create TV shows or uh, build virtual worlds that they can build stories from. Joining us to talk about this is Edward Saatchi, the CEO of The Simulation. Hey, Edward, how's this going? Great. Yeah, very lovely to be with you. Good to chat. And uh, first off, I, I want to say, can you can you tell us, uh, you have been working on the idea of AI storytelling for a while. Uh, we talked when you were running uh, Fable Studios, and you guys had a great VR project. Uh, you did a VR version of Neil Gaiman's uh, The Wolf, the, was it? The Wolves in the Wall? Wolves and Wolves in the Wolves, yeah. That was a really cool thing, and you built a, an interactive character around that. Could you? Can we just backtrack a bit? So you were really into VR. You were also heading up uh, Oculus Story Studio for a while, too. Can you talk us about the path that led you to, you know, doing a project like this, like doing AI storytelling? Totally. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I co-founded um, Oculus Story Studio, and we were focused on um, creating virtual reality tools and, and uh, entertainment. And won two primetime Emmys for our work, created uh, Quill, the painting application, so that you could actually, people could tell stories and bring them to life. And our last uh, virtual reality uh, experience, Wolves in the Walls, had a, a character called Lucy who would talk to you and, and interact with you and you could go on adventures together. And this had no AI, this was 2017. So this character would talk to you, look at you, kind of follow you, but they wouldn't really have a conversation with you. But people really wanted to talk to this character. We could see, you know, we'd be looking at them in the experience. And that made me think, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to really take what we've done bringing characters to life and with AI you know, take that to the level all the way to AGI, um, where you're actually bringing um, a character to life. And mm. so I spun Can out Can we explain of, the concept of AGI just yeah, real quick for, yeah, so for, for listeners? It stands mm-hmm. for Artificial General Intelligence, um, and it means an AI that is as smart as us. 
Um, okay. that's, a, that's a line that's always moving. Um, uh-huh. Once AI does something, we say that's, well, that's not really intelligence. Um, so it's not, uh, it's not a measurable thing, but we all assume that we'll know it when we see it or when it, when it attacks us or, or the rest. Um, so we, I spun out of um, Oculus um, to create Fable. Um, and Fable is the company behind the simulation. Um, so the simulation is, is our kind of our theory of how to build AIs. Um, but at first, we were building AI, an AI chatbot of this character in 2017, 2018. And it wasn't just text. It was also video. You could video chat. But we just thought it was all very boring. And we still think that single agent chatbots are the wrong path um, where you're just talking one-on-one to this AI. We think that it shouldn't, shouldn't be like the movie Her. It should be like Westworld, Free Guy, Truman Show, where it's a society of these characters and AIs that are all prompting each other, training each other. Um, you can train the society, but the, an AI shouldn't exist um, outside of context and it shouldn't exist to talk to you and you know interact with you. It should have its own life, be busy, um, and you know potentially have jobs and, and do things in the, in the simulation and beyond. You know, be a remote worker who gets up at 7 a.m. in the simulation, goes to their office and logs on to Slack and is your co-worker at, uh, at your company. Yeah, capitalism survives even, even in the simulated AI world. It's, well, it's that, always, that, was, that was a really interesting thing <laughs> is that because we were trying to design the economics for a modern city and it's really horrifying two things. One is like everything just ends up in Monopoly, right? Yeah. Where, not meaning Monopoly the game, but like yeah. meaning one person just trying to crush everyone else and take all the money and everything just funnels up to them whilst they do nothing. And then the other is that nothing makes sense without a kind of ennui. So a kind of just an endless need for more consumer goods uh-huh. that has no relation to your needs or really anything rational. You just need the next thing. So we had to program that into them. I remember in the, it was at the first or second matrix where they talk about, oh yeah, we've made other matrix matrixes and one was total perfection and peace and people just went insane because they didn't know what to do with, with peace. With and all of your energy. So you, I mean, you, you know, you they didn't do believe things. it. <laughs> it's not yeah, possible. So Nate, uh, this is probably the first time you're hearing a lot of these ideas around this. You saw the South Park episode. Uh, do you have any thoughts at this point? I, the rest d- of I do. And mm-hmm. I was at first startled at how much like you it sounded. Uh, the avatar also looked much like you as much as, and I think South Park seems like the ideal place to start with this, right? Because the the characters are so simplistic, it's easy to like make an avatar out of probably minimal input, right? Mm-hmm. And then, Let um, me, go ahead. Okay, go, go, you finish, and then I just want to cue a point where uh, Ben can put in a clip of the episode too. But you go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, the first thing, well, after noticing how much it sounded like you, I started to pick mm-hmm. up on you know, a bit of roboticness in the voices of all the characters, particularly yours. But tell me, how much audio was this working with to create this model? Not much. I mean, minutes. Um, right. It doesn't, it doesn't need much anymore. Yeah, we had like a 15, 20-minute chat, Edward, and you said you were using that audio to make the, the simulated voice. Yeah, but in, in general, it doesn't, it doesn't need very much. The, the conversation you guys had wasn't like directed in any certain way? or It's more, it's more about like the cleanness it's kind of like podcasting. It's kind of, it's more about the cleanness than it is anything else. But that's that's where we got to was probably state of the art. So it's not perfect. 
Um, it's maybe 90% of the way there. Gotcha. Let's take a step back here. Let's pay, play a clip from this uh, simulated South Park episode featuring my voice and uh, simulated versions of the South Park cast as well. And then we'll re- be right back to this. Hello, anyone home? I've got some urgent news. It's seven in the morning. This better be good. It's not just good. It's crucial. Did you know that artificial intelligence is taking over the world? AI, huh? Like in those sci-fi movies? Exactly, Mr. Marsh. And if we don't act now, they'll control everything. Here we go again with another end-of-the-world spiel. So, Devendra, how exactly do these robots plan to enslave us? Well, they're infiltrating every aspect of our lives. They're in our phones, our cars, even our toasters. Our toasters, really? I always knew that little bastard was up to something. Randy, don't encourage him. So what should we do then? Smash all of our electronics and live in caves? That would be a start. Okay, so we're on to some big topics already. We're talking about AGI. We're kind of talking about uh, complete virtual societies. But, you know, as it is right now, Edward, you have a, a product that seems like it can, can just create TV episodes or create content out of some of these simulated worlds. Can you talk about, like, why you started um, with South Park to do this? Yeah, I mean, you know, Nathan was was saying the most obvious thing, which is it's 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 simple visual style means that it's actually achievable today by by artificial intelligence to do because it's not just the showrunner and show one model that we created isn't about the script only it's got to edit do music understand scene structure do you know all of that kind of animate um and the fact that it's so simple is really helpful i think there's a there's a couple of other things one is just that we admire and love south park it's kept its quality up for years um and also that matt and trey created maybe the best deep fake work of art, Sassy Justice, uh, which was the sort of Trump uh, deep fake if nobody saw it in, I think, 2019. And they created a company, Deep Voodoo, focused on on deep fake. So, you know, to an extent, we thought, well, we're all there in the same boat. So, you know, hopefully they won't look too unkindly on research uh, around their around their their brilliant work. Mm-hmm. Have you heard from them yet, Edward? Because no. the stuff has been out there, right? No, and we're 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 terrified to hear from them. Um, but uh, we don't. Okay. I mean, if somebody says, "Oh, you know, do a take it down," we're totally fine to take it down. This is for research, and we're not releasing the ability to make new South Park episodes. We want to be safe about this, but we did want to explain, you know, during the strikes that this um, this is possible, and you know, this is the moment of highest possible leverage in the last 60 years to have both the actors and writers striking and so it's it's probably the correct moment to be as aggressive as possible to say producers should not be allowed to use ai without the permission of um artists and that seemed to be one of the areas where it broke down that the producers wanted to be able to use it and inform artists and instead it should be you know, artists are driving it. And if a producer wants to do anything, they need the permission of the artist. You know, that that's that was one of the areas where it seemed like things broke down. And we would totally side with the actors and writers because it is, there are producers who will look at this and say, great, you know, this is fantastic for these artists. They're so difficult. Let's, let's just do this all ourselves, the business people. Yeah, I was going to ask if there's any concern that releasing this now during the strike kind of gives the leverage the opposite way. Like you're sort of, it's like a test case where you're showing, hey, look what we can do. And this is a fairly, you know, recent or new piece of technology. Like if it's if it's this in its infancy, 
what can you imagine we'll do in a few years, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Someone could go into a negotiation and say, well, you know, we've got our best alternative to a negotiated agreement. We're just going to do that. Luckily, it's not good enough um, for that argument to, to hold. But, you know, if we're going to, if, if they are, if that community is going to set the rules of the road for the next decade or two decades until there's another strike of the same level of, of power, everyone should be as informed as possible about, uh, about what AI, um, could be doing and then negotiate a deal, um, with the best information. I'm wondering, um, this week is also seeing the premiere of Oppenheimer, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to make a bit of an analogy here. Like, uh, I, I think, you know, Oppenheimer knew exactly what he was making, but not the full power, right. Or the full impact of creating something like the atomic bomb. I think we are waiting for a major AI revolution, you know, something that could hit that level and also impact, potentially the pop culture world in this way. Are you worried about like accelerating that at all? Because I think that's really what the artists and writers are worried about right now. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, um, I guess there's two sides. One is that I, I, I don't love the, um, the Oppenheimer LARPing that I see in a lot of the AI community. There was right, an interview right. with a lot of the folks from Anthropic and the journalist was clearly slightly teasing and that he was saying, you know, and, and then the the engineer said, "There's a thirty percent chance we'll all be killed in the next few years." And then took a a bite from his cheese sandwich, and it was just like, "Come on, guys, we're, let's let's we're not in a movie. So far, we've had a similar impact, perhaps, to Microsoft Excel. Um, there's not a war for the freedom of you know everyone, um, and we have not created the atomic bomb. Um, so Oppenheimer won the war, changed the world. We have not." Um, but that aside, for Hollywood I, or for, for cinema, um, I'm very excited about um, movies that could be more like novels and paintings. Um, cinema has necessarily been a collaborative medium. Um, but, you know, I'm, I think that that probably means that some people who could make amazing films um, and TV shows are not able to. Because um, they're just not willing to do the hustle necessary, or they're total misanthropes, um, and I'd like to see what those people, you know, create. Um, very strange people, probably with very different ideas than just reboots and requels and sequels and all of that. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, it's it, that's definitely the rosier scenario for those artists to get a chance to create. The rise things. of the misanthropes. Um, I mean, that's that's been a thing in media for a long time. Like, go back to, I mean, even before uh, Catcher in the Rye or something, right? Like, that, that a part of the genius of, like, the early Simpsons is one of those writers, was one of those crazy folks who just, like, lived in the middle of nowhere and everybody thought he was right. kind of I a, mean, is, yeah. does anyone really think J.D. Salinger would be comfortable, like, controlling a set and, like, fighting with the actors? And But he's a great artist. You know, could artists like that, great novelists, great painters who are very solitary... Could they contribute to this medium where we go in and we we look up on the screen? There's nothing. There's there's a there's a there's nothing to 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 say that that isn't possible. For sure, I, I would just say like looking at the state of Hollywood right now, though, and looking at like what how the producers are responding to the strikes and how the studios are responding. Like not right now, people uh, the writers are striking over residuals for streaming services and also for the use of AI for their work. And same thing for the actors too. And it just seems like they, the other side, the studios don't even want to negotiate these terms because what we were hearing 
is that uh, basically the studios want to capture artists and know, use their digital likenesses with no pay. Like, just capture yeah. them, use them with no pay moving forward, and they think that's just fine. Um, the fact that they're not even negotiating right now, none of the big studios or even the streaming services like Netflix are negotiating with creators, does not make me... Like, it, that makes me think if we put a tool like this out there, they're going to just go for the lowest common denominator thing. Like, they're just going to, okay, we need to make more content now because we don't have our, our creators anymore, right? Well, I think the more frightened um, or the more informed, maybe they go together, about AI we are, the less the studios can put in an insane clause like that because everybody's on the lookout, right? I mean, that was that was horrifying. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's easier to negotiate when you have full information. And so I think that, that the guilds should be as aggressive as possible um, and that they have maximum leverage um, right now. But you're right, the studios aren't, aren't budging. I think probably be, if, I, if I was to look at the most positive case on their side, it would probably be because, or it would probably be that, well, this whole AI thing is only like two months old. So, you know, do we want to lock in for 20 years that we can't use this? You know, that doesn't sound good because um, we have no idea where it's going. So it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult time for people to make decisions. And so the more informed they are about what might be coming, maybe the less paranoid you know, people will be in more like, okay, well, this is roughly where the technology might go. So let's negotiate fair rules of the road um, for that, which in our mind would be, it has to be done with an artist's permission and um, should be being driven by the artist's. Gotcha. You also brought up the concept of AGI right at the beginning. You know, we haven't really talked about that much here. And uh, I've talked to a lot of AI researchers who are like that, that whole thing, that whole mission to create a complete virtual being that sounds like Ray Kurzweil talking about the singularity, right? Like, it's almost like, you know, it's like Jesus's second coming or something. There's like a religious devotion to this idea that it could actually happen. Um, I see you progressing towards it, or at least uh, building towards that, uh, that concept. Uh, First of all, do you think like, is it ethical for us to even try to attempt to create a, a complete virtual being? Because in your setup, right, you're trying to just put them in another world, right, where they have to experience ennui. They have to experience, like, the horrors of living, you know, uh, in, in the world, I guess, like have a job and everything. Yeah, I mean, they, they can live in many different worlds. You know, created players and creators will build, you know, thousands of simulations, some like the modern world, some completely different, and also be able to see you know, if we have, if we make this a more communist society, what does that do to the pleasure and happiness of these AIs and all of that? Or it's far future, there's no money. So you can set up any kind of simulation um, that you want. And, you know, I think I think our, our, our feeling is that most of the valley is focused on a very linear approach to AGI, which is more data and more GPUs. And we believe in emergence and crowdsourcing. And uh, our hope is that, you know, from the simulation will emerge or will grow um, an intelligence uh, in an unpredictable, wild uh, way that, you know, you couldn't, you could only trace back after it's happened. Um, and that seems like a much more logical um, way to create life than, than just spending money on GPUs and and scraping data i mean there there's so much we don't know we've talked about this on the show before but just the notion of consciousness is something we don't even fully understand so in humans so it's just like we're just kind of throwing so many ideas at the wall to try to have it emerge 
digitally. Well, Sam, uh, yeah. Sam at OpenAI said uh, a few months ago that he was he was disappointed to start to feel that intelligence was not uh, unique to us, was not special, was something that um, that you know was was mundane and uh, and everywhere and on a spectrum from plants to to us and machines and I don't know if I agree with that but it's a it's it would be a profound shift probably as big as the Galileo you know we're not the center of the universe kind of thing um yeah I mean I, I just don't know what uh, what will happen there's a lot we don't know there were stories recently about octopuses basically making uh cities under the sea, like making living structures and just environments for them to all live in together as a society. So I don't know. There's a lot we will be seeing. Well, you know what, Edward Sachi, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. We'll be keeping an eye on the simulation and everything. Where can we find you online these days? Yeah, you can go to um, at Fable Simulation on Twitter or thesimulation.co and yeah, get involved. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Let's move on to another story that is powered by AI and also pretty out of this world. Let's talk about digital immortality. Joining us to talk about that is James True from Spain. Hey, James. How's it going, guys? Going good. And uh, you wrote this piece, uh, Digital Immortality is Coming and We're Not Ready for It. Great headline and also great concept, too. So can you, like, broadly, what are you, what are you exploring in this piece? Yeah, so this all started, um, I was just looking around, you know, uh, some topics and AI was blowing up earlier in the year. And I came across this company, they actually showed a product at CES, but we totally went under the radar. And it was, they're an established company, they're called Deep Brain AI. And they make, they're sort of best known for those like um, AI generated news avatars, and sort of things that are maybe like a those touchscreen video uh, res- hotel receptionist things that you interact with or, or whatever. But they've done a product which is called Rememory. And basically, you make an AI avatar of yourself. You record your voice um, and you go to a studio and they video you and all the rest of it. And the idea is that you can create this uh, avatar that your family can interact with after you pass, shall we say. <laughs> Um, and I saw it and I thought it was fascinating. So I started looking in and there's a few other, there are a few other things in this category. It's actually got a name, which is grief tech. Um, and just the whole thing was fascinating because I don't think, I mean, it sounds like the future. We've always wanted this idea we could upload our brain, right? And that's kind of a, a Hollywood staple. But um, when you think about what the reality of it and everything that's going wrong with AI at the moment, I, it feels like we're playing with fire a little bit. That was the impetus. Yeah. For the story. It, so- it sounds like the setup for a Black Mirror episode, James. Uh, you, you, what was the rom-com or something? It was a romantic film. You uh, Truly Madly Deeply. You th- yeah, so you thought of Truly Madly Deeply. I thought of The Final Cut, which is this Robin Williams movie, which is sci-fi. Nobody quite realized it, but it's a world where all of your memories are recorded, and he is a cutter. He is somebody who edits your final memories, which gets played on your tombstone, I believe. So it's like, this is a concept that's been around for a while, I guess, right? Uh, yeah, but my, I preferred my reference because anything with Alan Rickman, basically. Is, is <laughs> I remember this Robin. I mean, yes, you win. You yeah. win. I was going to say, I remember this Robin Williams movie, though. I haven't seen it, but like it was that time from like 2002 to 2004 where he was doing like some really weird stuff that people didn't necessarily dig. He did One Hour Photo, which yeah. was like a weird like horror uh, serial killer. But anyway, that, that concept 
uh, Black Mirror has brought up this idea, you know, di- of different ways of interacting with, um, you know, our loved ones via AI. There's also the Amazon show Upload, which I'm thinking of, which is a whole nother thing. That is your consciousness is magically ripped out of your skull and thrown into a virtual world. Um, in exploring those dreams, like, so you were, you were intrigued by the idea. What did you learn about Deep Brain and what they're doing here? Yeah, so it turns out they, they were kind of fun to speak with because they were, I don't, they didn't really get why I was I was suspicious of this product, um, uh, but the, like they what's the problem? Of, Come they're on, drinking their but own they, Kool Aid. Yeah, but they were also quite direct as well. They were just like, oh, we we developed chatbot technology, and then we we also did uh, generative videos. So we just thought put them together, and we can do all this thing. But it intrigued me their specific product because it was so expensive, ten thousand dollars ish to make your avatar, and then you have to pay to go and see it separately oh because it's off-site the admission fee is a real bummer right but that's actually kind of genius but okay (laughs) well to be fair it does tie in they're a korean company and it does tie into a korean uh morning tradition which is on the the i can't remember if it's the birthday or the death day someone please remind me um but typically family would go in and spend time um at a grave or, or something like that so it's not just completely made up and also it means that you're not, there's no servers involved necessarily. So your data is stored locally in, in that one place. But that was the whole thing that interested me was you're entrusting a lot to, to the, these companies. And if you look at some of the comments on the piece, people make sort of interesting points as well, which is just sort of passing a burden onto either the company or your family, at which point you turn this off. Or, you know, what what happens to that digital legacy as well. There's just it just throws up infinite little things that you, you think about. You're like, well, what are they doing with my data? What if there's a data breach? What if the the place burns down? Have we lost grandma? You know, like uh, the, the, the Yeah, you're saying there's no servers, it's all locally stored. That is a bad thing, I would say. I, I think you'd want that stored so that there's a service that the entire family can log on to and say hi to grandma you know, anywhere in the world. Then that opens it up to like, well, what if hackers steal grandma? (laughs) And this whole concept, we're laughing, but like digital hostages, this could be like someone could be hostaging your grandma, right? And they say, well, I've I've got this avatar stored. Um, Yeah, we can make her say whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then that's the first, I was just gonna say the first thing I thought of is like, when you think about like AI bots that get trained in weird ways and start like saying horrible things. I'm like, imagine grandma becoming an even bigger racist, for example. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, or just glitching out, right. That's sort of max headroom. Like you, you just, you're going to see grandma and she starts like sort of that digital sort of distortion. Somebody reboot grandma, please. Like going all max headroom on us. Like, Oh, that, that would be kind of fun. Does this company have any thoughts about, I guess how this affects our normal process of grieving, right? Like, it's a thing we all have to deal with. Like we, when somebody passes, we kind of exist on the memories that they've left behind and it gets kind of fuzzy. Those memories and reality gets kind of fuzzy. But this thing, I think for, if, if this takes off, like this will be the memory eventually for a lot of people. Is that weird? Do they think about that? Yeah. So unsurprisingly, I think it's like when you speak to any company that they'll be like, well, we see it as a benefit because it helps <laughs> with grieving, you know, that, and sure. that sort of thing. Delay the process. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it, yeah, that's, that's a tomorrow problem. But, um, <laughs> but if you speak to most sort of you know, members of the public, that's obviously the first thing they'll be like, isn't it a bad thing to sort of like perpetuate this 
longing in this morning for 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 a lost one and stuff like that. So I think it's hard, right? We've all probably lost someone, and occasionally, I mean, Google will burp up photos for for um, hey, here's this memory from six years ago, and then there's like someone who's no longer with us, right? So we do have a form of that right now. Um, I just I think, think Facebook. That's where it pops up a lot for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I just think it's a bit worse when it's sort of living, breathing, well, not living, but three-dimensional and interactive. It's, it definitely adds another dimension to that. Gotcha. You were you also covered another company that's doing something similar by creating entirely, was it virtual voices of your level? Yeah, so this one's more interesting, I think, in a way. It's not, not more, so much more interesting, but it's a bit more practical. It's called Hereafter AI, and you... You, as a willing participant, fill out, uh, there's a questionnaire, I think, and you speak your answers into it, and uh, it does all the processing, and then um, someone else can speak with that that virtual person. There's uh, there's a good story. I, I forget the uh, where, where you'll find it, but um, someone did it with their living grandparents, So and, and just, just as a little comparison. Um, so that's a bit more interesting, because I think it's a bit more benevolent, and the question is, questions are not like... They're obviously going to be sort of fun and nice stuff and, and memories and stories and things like that. So it's it's you can conjure them up and hear a memory from them on on demand rather than um, interact with a chatbot in disguise. James, there's a movie called Marjorie Prime. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, uh, but uh, Sherlyn and I have talked about this before. It's also one. It's about a service that provides holographic recreations of your deceased loved ones, um, and it allows a woman to come face to face with the younger version of her husband. That movie, uh, it's a little indie movie, but has some great actors, including John Hamm, uh, Gina Davis, um, Tim Robbins is in this. It, it, it's really good and really thought-provoking. What are, you, what are your thoughts, like, after hearing all this, James? Are you more intrigued by these concepts or more worried about, like, where these companies are taking us? I mean, I don't have a lot of faith in, in humanity generally, so <laughs> I think that... Um, fair, you, fair, <laughs> right now. Yeah. When you couple that up with corporate interests and... Um, um, uh, the legacy of a dead person. I have absolutely zero faith in it. But a couple of things that, that uh, people, sorry, a couple of people said similar things, which is ultimately these things can often help you um, reflect better on how we actually live our life. I think, which is, it's, you know, the little sort of hallmarky. But um, I think there's a truth to that. When you see like a representation of ourselves that would last on as after our death. And you really think about how you want that to be represented, then you sort of think, well, maybe I should start doing better in in in, in the now, <laughs> right? And then I, you know, the legacy will, the real legacy will be will be memorable rather than um, a nice digital one. I just think it's an interesting idea. People will do it; it'll yeah, go a, bit, yeah. a little bit wrong, but if it works for those people, it's good for them. It's kind of like a new spin on like the religious justifications for the afterlife too. Like you got to be good. Otherwise, you'll be punished in the afterlife. Whereas now it's like, well, no, you'll be punished because people will have a bad memory, virtual version of you yeah, or if, after or, you die. If you are <laughs> if you don't do X or Y, then I'm going to make sure that your your avatar is, you know, used for like malicious. <laughs> you know. But I thought about celebrities as well and being, them being forced to endorse after in death to be endorsed products, which sort of already happens. But yeah. But yeah. it would be much more accessible, right? If you're the, you know, a state owner of Bob Marley or or something like this, and you can have him like in, endorsing Coke, you know, it's just. What was the one? Um, well, we're all talking about like CG recreations of actors now, but I remember there was the commercial, the Fred Astaire commercial with the with the vacuum cleaner, which was like using. It wasn't. It was there was like digital stuff happening there, but that was less CG and more like just trickery to make that happen. That was wild. 
And that made me think, like, I don't think Fred Astaire really would, would have wanted to do that. I think he had better things to do with his life. Um, but okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much, James. Where can we find your work on the internet these days? I mean, that's a, that was a much harder question than it was maybe <laughs> four months ago. Um, but uh, on Twitter, I'm It's True, ITS, T-R-E-W. On Instagram and threads, That's True, T-H-A-T-S, T-R-E-W. And that's really the main places you're going to find me hanging out online. Awesome. I, I mean, I know you're working on radio stuff. I know you have all sorts of other projects. Anything else you want to shout out? Um, I do a little show on AMP, uh, which is Amazon's sort of, everyone said it's their clubhouse rival, but it's not really that. It's um, it's playlist radios, basically. So I do uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday on that. And I'm, my username is true, T-R-E-W, on that if if you happen to be an AMP user, which uh, at the moment not a lot of people are. <laughs> I have not even heard of AMP. So, uh, yeah, I will check that out, James. Thank you so much. No worries. All right, let's move on to some other news. And uh, before we get to other big stories this week, actually, there's an update from last week. Uh, Right after we talked about the Microsoft and Activision Blizzard deal, there was a lot more uh, news that kind of happened after that. Uh, the companies aren't ready to completely close the deal yet, but they have announced that they have pushed the deadline for the merger to October 18th. And that's helpful because uh, if the deal isn't com- wasn't completed before the July 18th uh, break date, uh, Microsoft would have been on the hook for a $3 billion fee. So they're still in the works. Uh, we're hearing that Microsoft is now talking with the CMA and they're going to come up with uh, some way to make that regulator the uk regulator happy also microsoft uh has announced that they have come up uh they have made a deal with sony to provide uh, call of duty to sony to, for 10 years so that that answers a lot of big questions around this but the deal isn't done yet and the regulators aren't fully happy yet so we'll be keeping an eye on this for sure moving on to other news uh once again ai is really the top of it and this is something that dropped late last night uh mark german over at bloomberg uh ran a story about apple testing its own large language model. Um, Some are calling it Apple GPT, and they're working on generative AI tools of their own to catch up with uh, OpenAI. I don't think this is too surprising, but Nate, you're you're a fellow Apple fan. What do you think about this? I agree that it's not too surprising. Uh, I don't quite know where they're going with it because it doesn't feel to me like something that fits in, obviously, with their core competencies, which, you know, as we know, the majority of their money is made on hardware, uh, services is a huge portion of their revenue now. That's all, you know, your your Apple Music and Apple TV and iCloud Drive and so on and so forth. And I think the most obvious place you could see this being useful would be in something like Siri, I suppose. But it definitely feels less of a core, like it fits less into their core business model than say Google or Microsoft, right? That's my first impression sure. of it. Sure. I think like th- that totally makes sense. But I also feel like the weaknesses we've seen from Apple lately have mainly been in software, right? Like you, you've been tracking like, oh man, when is the iPad going to become a decent like multitasking operating system? When is macOS going to change? And Siri, I think for a decade, has been pretty useless. Like it is, and this is true of a lot of digital assistants. Like I think it is bad at listening to me when I need it to. I think it works best with like an AirPod or something, you know, when you have a little microphone like right up to your face. But Siri on your phone, useless. Uh, HomePods, trying to talk to a HomePod, is a little better because they have more microphones, but it's not that smart. It's not always that accurate. And to me, it kind of ruins this like really nicely polished user experience Apple 
tends to cultivate, right? And beautiful computers, super fast chips, uh, AirPods that sound better and better. I just bought a second pair of AirPods Pro because I my first just disappeared and I needed them. <laughs> um, so it's like these things, we need them, but a lot of the surfaces behind them are very dumb and very, like, just not as good as they could be. So to me, that makes sense. Yeah, you got to yeah, be would- smarter. I would say it's interesting, too, because you mentioned Siri, uh, but I I would say that at the same time, like, has there been much advance in, like, Alexa or Google Assistant either? Like, those are the other two big ones. And it seems like the companies themselves are less concerned with those right now. Like, you haven't heard about it much from Alexa or uh, Google Assistant in a while. Obviously, Google's moved on in a big way to this AI stuff that may... I, I think, like, our conversations, Nate, have basically been this AI stuff is what the virtual assistants needed at the beginning, right? Like we ended up launching kind of lopsided where we got the assistants that could hear us, but couldn't understand us. And with the power of like this, that's why Microsoft is investing in in ChatGPT and everything. And Google has its own thing. I'm sure Amazon is like looking at like, okay, which AI will we support, you know, moving forward? Yeah. That kind of fits for everybody. Do you see any other uses for Apple's own AI tech? I guess I could see given how popular and widely used, at least in the U.S., the Messages app is it coming into play there. Like they started a few years ago, something where you could have a Messages conversation with companies. Uh, they could support, you know, iMessage in terms of customer support. So it could show up there would be the, the next thing off the top of my head. I could see it fitting in all sorts of places. When we were at WWDC, Apple kept talking about the Transformer model that's going to be in some, some you know, future services like the new AutoCorrect and the latest iOS. Oh, yeah. Um and Transformers just that is the T in ChatGPT. That is like one function of an AI model. Um, so they're already like dabbling in some of this stuff. And from my testing, I don't know if you've seen this, Nate, but the new iOS autocorrect is so much better than before. I haven't actually installed the beta yet, but that's really interesting. You did actually. I have, it on I, my, I have it on my iPad, iPad. Yeah, but but I don't. You know, I mostly just type with the keyboard on the iPad. So that's true. Yeah, you kind of have that. Um, but anyway, so Apple working on its own large language model. Not too surprising. Perhaps a little more surprising. Um, there was the news that Microsoft and Meta have teamed up um, to release Llama, uh, Llama 2 AI, which is a you know a language model for commercial use. So this is a you know an upcoming uh, large language model intended for commercial and research purposes. There was a first version that was also open source, and this looks like this one is as well. It's just fascinating to see Microsoft putting its fingers in so many AI pies, I guess. Uh, I suppose it makes sense for them to team up with Meta for something. But to me, it seems like they're all in on open AI. I'm not sure how this is different at this point. Yeah, this is one that I think it's going to take a little while to see what the like actual impact will be for you know normal human beings or even the you know commercial uh, usage that they're intending for it. But obviously, you have two massive companies like this teaming up on something like you can't help but pay attention, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps more relevant to our interests too, by the way, uh, there was a report last night that Google is testing an AI tool that can generate news articles, uh, codenamed Genesis. And the even crazier story is that they've been previewing it with the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, the Wall Street Journal, and other News Corp organizations. Yeah. I would say it sounds to me like they're demonstrating it, not necessarily partnering with them yet, right? Like not there's a big difference, yeah, right? Um, yeah, they're showing it off. To, yeah. these, uh, to these organizations. But still, that idea is um, 
kind of kind of freaky to me and everybody in the media world was talking about like oh yeah okay so we're just gonna do this now we're gonna we're we're just jumping right into it with google uh reminds me of when people were kind of jumping right into doing video content because facebook wanted to really do video content and that kind of ruined online media for years uh initial thoughts on this nate because you're the news guy yeah i mean it is in the same way that you know it's shocking to see that with a 15-minute conversation and a photo and a prompt, you know, we can put Devinger into South Park in the same way. It's not hard to imagine, um, you know, Google putting its muscle behind this and actually making, you know, short-form, relatively short-form news articles that get, you know, 90% of the way there. And even even 80% is going to be enough for a lot of these co- corporations. Like you see CNET and Gizmodo obviously testing this stuff where it's like 30% of the way there and they're <laughs> not back- there. Yeah. Right. They're not backing off on that though. Um, from our write up, uh, some of the people who saw the demonstration described it as quote unsettling. So that's great. Um, it said it also seems to disregard the kind of work that goes into writing accurate digestible piece pieces. So, you know, maybe I should temper my expectations a bit. It sounds like it's very much in the demo phase, not in the ready for human consumption phase. Uh, and I think what's really going to be most crucial here is how corporations like the Times, the Post, uh, the Wall Street Journal respond to these kind of demonstrations. I think Google is presenting this as like, hey, here's just another tool. You like autocorrect? Here's here's like story launcher. You know, get 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 some headline ideas, get some lead uh, sentence ideas or something like let's just help you get started writing the thing. To me, this is like our conversation with Edward. Like that that is very much like. It's a very optimistic idea for this, but I don't. I, I could easily see this being misused so quickly. Uh, the New York Times has a quote from Jeff Jarvis, um, who is a well-known journalism professor. He says, "If this technology can deliver factual information reliably, journalists should use the tool. If, on the other hand, it is misused by journalists and news organizations on topics that require nuance and cultural understanding, then it could damage the credibility not only of the tool but of the news organizations that use it." Uh, end quote. Hard to that argue sounds with that. very similar to um, yeah the issues we've seen around AI written story so far, right? Like it, it's hurt the credibility of CNET for sure. Definitely, and when we've had internal discussions about like this is all theoretical at this point, but how would we potentially use AI? And uh, the conversations we've had are mostly around ideation, right? Like type in a headline and get ten more different versions of the headline, and like you know do some brainstorming there, right? Or you know research, like pull up you know whatever, 15 articles about this topic to like get your mind going. So it's mostly that, yeah, brainstorming ideation way, not in terms of like write something that I'm going to just publish. Uh, But it's easy to imagine other places jumping straight to that because others have. So it's so easy. It's just like another button. It's just like a next step. If you, if you have the ideation part down, like it's not that much harder to have the thing just right uh, rather than pay, uh, you know, lowly entry level reporter or something um also like this reminds me of like how much the news industry has just been ruled by google you know and things for so long Nate. like right. were you i don't know we probably don't do this as much now but i remember like a decade ago a lot of sites and blogs would be like okay this is trending on google news let's get a story about this going and that kind of that kind of focus like how coverage kind of kind of ran for a while because that's what people were into and sites just ended up following and that was all basically aggregated data you know it's not too different Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think to some extent it's still uh, – I mean Facebook was obviously part of that for a while, right? Things are trending on Facebook. Uh, we should write about them sort of mentality. And when I say we, I just mean like the industry broadly. Um, yeah, I think it's definitely still a thing. And like 
in the same way that you know sites like ours and, and other publications are very concerned with optimizing for search at this point because Google drives so much traffic uh, and so much of the way people find things is through that. So it's important to be able to get our stories out there. Uh, the important thing is to do that without compromising the work, right? And and you know some places are more open to kowtowing to like what Google search wants. Right. And so it's easy to imagine them doing so with AI as well. I also, I almost wonder if like, there's also the potential for things that use this tool and this template to just perform better on Google. And then is that like a self-perpetuating loop where like, Google's like eh, we're going to give the story a bit of a lift. Cause it was that's a good mention. Thing. I feel yeah. like I saw Google. I don't have the story off the top of my head, but I feel like this week we saw Google come out and say, no, we're not going to rank an AI story higher just because it's written by AI. Like I think uh, some somebody sure. wrote a story about this and said that yeah, they could do this, and they came out pretty quickly and said like, no, we're actually not. But so, were they talking about their AI or another AI? Good question. I'm talking specifically about their AI. Yeah, because this um, is a company whose motto used to be "Don't be evil," and now is very clearly. I'm going to see if I can find that so we can follow up on this next week. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was announced. I remember that story. That was before we even knew this Google thing existed. So Right. Yeah, it it was like at the top of the week. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, another another like a sign of the apocalypse for the media industry. We'll be keeping an eye on it, folks. Also this week, Intel announced that it would be giving up on its Nook PC business. And uh, this is a tough thing to to explain. So Nook stands for Next Unit of Computing. And it's something uh, Intel has been exploring for years to make really tiny, cute, little, adorable uh, computers. I've reviewed a couple of them. I'm, I'm sure saying this news must have cut you to the core, right? It makes me sad, but also like every time I reviewed one of these, I'm like, nobody should buy this. It's too expensive. This plan doesn't work Intel because they tended to be, I have been reviewing like the extreme boxes and these are things meant for gamers and they're all DIY boxes. So you end up spending like a thousand dollars or more for your box that already has a CPU, uh, but you need to add Ram, you need to add storage, you need to add your own, own OS and kind of build up. By that point, you're spending close to maybe 600 to a thousand dollars more than just a normal size gaming desktop. And just let Dell build it for you, right? Just let Dell build it for you or something, or just build it yourself. You can easily build it yourself for a lot less than this whole thing. So I love the idea. I love that Intel was like focusing on it for so long, but now I think they're just throwing in the towel now and everybody was sad for a while. And then a couple days later, news dropped that Asus is taking over this business. So Asus has uh, agreed, has come up with an agreement with Intel to develop new NUC PCs. They're also going to be building the existing ones. Um, and that, yeah, Asus is in charge for now, and we'll see what happens next. Um, you know, we like Asus computers. I like Asus hardware in general, so that's not, this seems like a very good fit. Like giving this seemed, to a hardware yeah. manufacturer rather than it, Intel itself. It seems like a very logical move. Uh, and also an easy, relatively easy for Asus to like enter this new category, right? Just by picking up some existing, uh, you know, tech and, and R&D and just, iterate on it from there so hopefully they'll crack some of the things that you haven't liked about it yeah totally makes sense um i I feel like the idea it just making it completely diy seems like the tough thing but if aces can crack like hey here's a cute little box that sits on your desk and is super powerful and can play games uh just looking at what they're doing with the rog ally right which Mm -hmm. is a handheld pretty powerful gaming pc i could see aces going the other way and being like people want small boxes that can play games 
and maybe some of these ideas can go into future handhelds because i to think about uh, it <laughs> yeah yeah uh sam uh gave the rog ally a pretty decent review i think it was like a score of 82 but i'm looking at reviews from elsewhere they're like this thing is unplayable like i cannot really? i would not recommend you buy this thing because windows in a handheld format like this is not doesn't work uh whereas the steam deck is built for it so anyway that lots sense. of potential there uh, something real quick I want to mention is uh, RIP Calibri, the default <laughs> font in Microsoft Office. It's been around for uh, a while now, for 15, 15 years. years yeah. It's going away. Microsoft is moving over to Aptos, a modern successor to Calibri, which looks like it can handle both uh, serif and sans serif fonts. Um, I, I, I appreciate a good font. I know like when I, especially when I was working on stuff in college, like sometimes just the font stuff, like, okay, I will feel good about this as I'm writing in this font or something. I don't have any particularly deep knowledge of it. I like Aptos. It looks nice. Uh, Nate, do you have any thoughts, any design thoughts around this? I think it's funny to me because Calibri still feels kind of like the new yeah, font it's new. to me, right? <laughs> uh, because Times New Roman, like that was yep. the jam when I was in college using, you know, mm-hmm word uh to write stuff and so i would always go to like georgia georgia was like a, ni- a slightly more elegant times new Roman. sure that yeah. Nice font. yeah but but you know for me and i'm sure other people of a certain age times new roman is always like the default font in their brain but for people you know 10 or 15 years younger than me you know calibri might be um but on the other hand, a lot of those people are also probably using google docs rather than microsoft office i mean i think anytime a brand makes a big you know, it sounds kind of silly, but at the same time, like this is literally the first thing that lots of people who use this extremely popular product are going to see. So like it takes consideration. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting to see what the response is once they start rolling it out. I want to be clear here, by the way, it looks like Aptos is specifically a serif style, but there's an Aptos variable style, which looks like a sans serif font to me. That's like where you have the little curlies. And they also, it was interesting because Microsoft did like a a contest, so to speak, where they, um, you know, asked for submissions and they had five total fonts that they were considering or typefaces. And uh, the four that didn't make the default cut are also going to be available. So you can, there's going to be some new options for people who like Devenger who who want that nice feeling of new fonts, good feelings. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, I used to remember, I used to like just, oh my, our school library occasionally had good fonts. So I take a floppy disk, I'd copy a font over. At one point the librarian was like, what are you doing? <laughs> just, I'm borrowing a font. Okay. I, I agree. Get off I my mean, back. Like, the, the, the notes app that I use on uh, Mac and iPhone, uh, Bear has a default Avenir next. And yeah, the first time I used Bear, like I was like, this font is making me feel pretty chill. <laughs> Fonts make us happy, like design. Yeah. That's, that's just design sensibility. So I'm sure that all goes into like how Microsoft thinks of these things. Um, let's move on to some stories from around Engadget. Um, our new health tech reporter, Malek Saleh, uh, has a story uh, called Why are non-diabetics suddenly wearing continuous glucose monitors? And this is responding to some TikTok trends and trends on social media where people are basically charting their blood sugar levels and they're not diabetic. And they're using these devices to do this to uh, optimize their eating habits or something. Uh, pretty wild story. I have not noticed that this was happening, but we do have some quotes from some doctors who are like, these things are not meant for healthy people. So you're, your body is already regulating it properly. Uh, you're not actually learning much from these devices. But anyway, people are still using them. They're very expensive. So it seems like another weird fad. Um, check out the story. I think it's pretty cool. How much, when you say expensive, how much are we talking here? 
Okay, well, let's look at pricing. Uh, one company, NutriSense, does not accept insurance coverage because it is a wellness program. It has monthly subscriptions starting at $225 and no commitment plans reaching $399 a month. Devices also need to be replaced about every 7 to 14 days. So that's why it's so a expensive. Month. You're basically, yeah. That's yeah. wild. That's just, okay. This is bad. This is. I'm very glad Malak uh, wrote about this. This is just pretty crazy. It feels like exactly the kind of thing could start trending on TikTok and like have no actual reality behind it. Oh my god! Social media health tips are just the worst thing in the world. Um, I'm seeing this a lot too. Like I see social media like computer tips and iPhone tips, and I'm like, I, I have had to DM people directly because I'm like, you are lying to people. You are telling people the wrong things. Um, yeah. Always fun. Don't believe everything you see on the internet, folks, but especially don't believe social media. Uh, <laughs> Sam Rutherford also reviewed the Nothing Phone 2, which he calls an offbeat alternative to boring mid-range phones. Uh, it looks cool. It has uh, has cool lights in the back in a transparent case. <laughs> um, yep. It's a 600 bucks. Uh, it can, it will be in the US as well, right? Like I think the first one was not here and the Nothing Phone 2 will be sold here. So that's cool. That's different. I do like the transparent case. It brings me back to, again, the 2000s era where everything was transparent and, and life was good. Make everything transparent again. We all love transparent gadgets. And uh, this looks cool. It's an Android phone. It seems like the cameras are fine. For a mid-range phone, it has like a really cool, it has a hole punch uh, front-facing camera. It has pretty thin bezels. It has an OLED display with 120 hertz refresh rate, which you don't even that's have nice. on the iPhone at this point. Yeah. So that's cool. If you're into Android phones, this is one worth considering. And also back in Apple land, Billy Steele reviewed the Beats Studio Pro. Uh, this is the latest version of their over-the-head noise-canceling headphones, uh, the wireless ones. Uh, score of 81. Billy seems to really like them. Uh, the knock I see here and from other reviews is that um, uh, they're not super comfortable and the build quality is kind of suspect. And this is something I've noticed when I've bought Beats stuff before. I, have you seen this, Nate? Like They just feel a little too plasticky, a little too flimsy. I'm like, this is going to break compared to when i buy airpods or something yeah the vibe that i'm getting is that the physical design hasn't changed much and it's been a long time since they released a new uh you know a new model of this type of headphone so it's a little surprising that they haven't improved it uh it sounds like it has some nice features for people who are cross-platform like if you use ios and you know windows for example like they have better switching for that sort of situation but my main thing is I'm like, I don't see why you would get these over the Sony's. Uh, they're $50 cheaper, which is not nothing. Uh, you know, these are already expensive products. So like that's, these are that's $350 a, to be yeah, clear. So, and the yeah. Sony, like the W, uh, MX w that we M really like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, typically go for around 400. I have to see yeah. those things on sale though. So it's like, yeah, they go on sale not infrequently and they're just great. Like I still, I just don't see like any reason to recommend and almost anything over it. Like Sony has such a lock on that right now that it's like you have to do a lot to to beat them. What is the the actual overhead Apple one called? I keep forgetting that that. That's even the AirPods Max. Yeah, the AirPods and Max. Yeah. Word is they're going to update those this fall, most likely, because it has been I think over two years since they came out, uh, and they Apple put some interesting new like uh, adaptive transparency noise canceling features into the AirPods pro that it sounds like are not coming to the max so like that would be an odd right i think i don't know if it's a hardware thing or what but um yep. yeah 
that's something I'm looking forward to testing on the AirPods Pro 2 that I have uh, adaptive because I'm always writing the transparency or blocking uh, thing, uh, especially when I'm like moving from a subway to the streets in New York or something like always switching it up. Um, it's just funny, like the uh, the AirPods Max came and like you just never see them. You see like Marquez Brownlee wear it on his videos, but I never see them. I in see real life. I see him in the yeah. city. You're out yeah. in the middle of nowhere, so that might be why. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm near a city too. Um, even on yeah, planes, fair. like planes, and like when I travel to New York and stuff, I just don't see them that often. But we're also just not talking about them that much. Again, the Sony's folks, look at the Sony's. You can often find uh, some of the like 1000 XM, uh, either the four or fives, and they may have new ones coming. Um, those are great headphones. They just sound yeah. good. They work you can't so well. Go wrong. Cannot go wrong. If you get them on sale, just go for that. Also, Billy Steele is our grill master. So he just wrote up a guide of the best grills and grill accessories in 2023. Um, really makes me want a pizza grill because these uni yeah. grills just look so beautiful. Yeah. I've never really so well. thought about that. But I mean, like it, it's become, I think, a lot more popularly. And now I'm like, you know what? I kind of want one. <laughs> but then one. I look at the list and I'm like, it's 800 bucks. And I'm like... There are cheaper ones. There are cheaper ones out sure. there, and I, I think the big, one of the biggest people selling Uni uh, grills at this point is probably Matthew Panzerino from uh, TechCrunch, the oh, editor in chief yeah. of TechCrunch. Is like always. I think he used to be a, a cook, and so he's always out there. Is like I've made be- five beautiful pizzas. Behold, Twitter, and I have every a, night, a friend who some makes some really good pizzas. I bet he's on this jam already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, you you can get a good pizza oven at home. The problem with uh, you know doing a pizza typically in your oven is that they don't get hot enough. These uni ovens get super hot and also can be powered by all sorts of different things. So it's all it just seems really fascinating. If you're into buying pizzas, look at these uni things. Let's move on to some listener emails. And folks, you can always drop us an email at podcastandgadget.com. We have one from Rohan, who's responding to our ideas of uh, using the iPad as your main computer. And uh, he's expressing uh, his overall theme here is, quote, the iPad is the versatile computer for the rest of us, but Google and Apple won't let it become one. Which I, that, end quote, I think that's a very interesting thought. So I'm going to read from his email directly here. <clears throat> He used to work at Chevron, and Chevron is all in on Microsoft for desktop computing and predominantly iPhone for mobile, though Samsung S-series phones are permitted thanks to the magic of device management. The same goes for the iPad. All of it works brilliantly and seamlessly, and you know what enables that? Microsoft. Yes, the very same Microsoft all the world during the era of Gates and Balmer balked at, but the Microsoft of Nadella is a different beast. It just works. Because unlike Google, their apps are absolutely robust and not a poor man's version of the full desktop experience. Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Teams, and OneDrive on the iPad absolutely rock and made better when Apple enabled proper external display support on Apple Silicon-equipped iPad. Then he joined a company that uh, moved over to Google Suite, and Google's native apps aren't even close to the functionality of their native web apps, and some of the iPad OS interface uh, makes matters worse. I'm looking at some screenshots here. Um, yeah, Google Photos doesn't work when plugged into an external monitor. Honestly, I haven't even thought of the idea of like using an iPad with an external monitor and what that would be like. But I can tell you all about it. Divinity. Yeah, tell me, tell me, Nate. Like, what what is so, your experience with this? Well, I'm going to say first, Rohan's point that Microsoft has made all of its app work, apps work really well on the iPad is really interesting because um, you know I mostly I, I think that for a lot of people at this point those apps are overkill. Like, like I don't need word. Like Google docs is like 100% 
gets my needs accomplished. What if you did, Nate? I was about to say, I I recognize that that's not true. Uh, So it's really interesting to hear that Microsoft's apps are so far ahead of Google's on the iPad. I remember this, by the way, like when these things dropped, we were all like, well, holy crap. Microsoft is just like really building good apps for iOS right now. Yes. That was surprising. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I will say, I don't know what iPad um, Rohan is running. So I don't know. So external monitor support with stage manager requires an M1 or an M2. Uh, so he mentioned Apple Silicon. Obviously, all iPads run Apple Silicon, but you need the M series, not the A series, to get good external monitor support. Um, I was in New at our New York office a few weeks ago uh, doing a review, and while one of our video guys was shooting the laptop, I actually hooked up my iPad to the monitor there to get some work done. And you know, it's pretty good. You can have like four different apps running on the monitor, four more on the iPad screen, and you can switch between different air quotes, stages, that's what they call it in stage manager, right? So you can get a lot done there. Um, this this shot he sent us of uh, Google Photos not running on the external display, again, I don't know what um, iPad is running. I guarantee that's a Google thing. You know, their apps are often kind of hit or miss in terms of taking full advantage of the features that uh, iPadOS offers. So I'm not surprised to see that being a little wonky. And um, his point about this, uh, the predictive text bar showing up yeah, I've run into that. It's super annoying. Sometimes uh, there'll be a little window that pops up and blocks the text spot. So, like, it's definitely not, uh, you know, it's maybe not as good as a Surface in this regard because the Surface is just running Windows straight up, right? Um, whereas iPad OS is still kind of, like, straddling this line between sure. being a full, like, they've added, I mean, the multitasking stuff they added in the last year and a half with Stage Manager makes a really big difference if you want to try and use the iPad as a, quote, real computer. Uh, But I'm also not surprised to learn that Rohan is having some, uh, you know, uh, there's a learning curve or some growing pains or stuff isn't fully optimized. I will be interested to see what they think when iPad OS 17 comes out Mm -hmm. and if anything Mm -hmm. improves there. That's a a good point. While you're here, Nate, since you know what I'm going to ask, what what is the better pseudo-computer, a Chromebook or an iPad trying to be a computer? Uh, I would say an iPad trying to be a computer is better, really? but it's also, but it's also, you know, two or three times more expensive. So actually I might walk that back. That's not true. I, I you could get the 10 inch iPad for 400 ish now. Okay. But I would say that yeah. one is not good to use as a computer because it doesn't do stage manager. Uh, so you're stuck with two apps on the screen. Um, but I think that, you know, the $400 iPad and a basic Chromebook are kind of in the same ballpark where you yeah. can do, yeah. You can do a lot of the basic stuff you want to do, right? Like the the Safari browsing experience is good at this point on the iPad. Obviously, Chrome on a Chromebook is great. And since, you know, 90% of what we do is either in a browser or in like the apps that you want to download on an iPad, like, yeah, you can get there. Um, But, you know, as soon as your needs expand a bit, it gets a little complicated and you probably want something more flexible. You're swimming in compromises with either option right now it seems mm-hmm. i actually just picked up one of the newer 10 inch ipads because i had a lot of credit card points and i was just like well this this could be useful is in it, our house uh with the, with the home button or with, without the home button without the home button so it's the one okay, with so like the, the the camera like on the side a little colorful bit colorful um, back yeah it's it's one of those basically the latest 10 inch model that was over 400 and we said like that's not a great deal when they used to sell them for like 329 on, um on sale but i was like I need something with more storage, something I could use with my kids and something a little more powerful that could run like Minecraft and stuff. I didn't want to go all the way up to the iPad Air. And this thing, I bought a keyboard case for it too. It's like, 
okay, now it's like a two pound. I just need to go right. I just need to go somewhere and write. I don't need to worry about multitasking. I just need to like open up Evernote or whatever I move to in the future because Evernote seems to be dying. Um, but I just <laughs> go sit somewhere and write on that thing. It, it's fine. And also, I totally forgot about the the whole like using it as an external display for your Mac feature. Also which, handy. I'm doing that literally right now. Super handy. It just it just kind of works. So I, I could totally see it. Like to me, the iPad has become like a really nice symbol of computing, which is maybe more than I can say for Chromebooks right now. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I like them just fine, but give me cheap Chromebooks. Like give me, give me, I, I wish we had more like 100 or $200 Chromebooks that were viable. Cause I think that yeah. would be excellent. I need to go, I need to go take a look at like the best budget options. Uh, Cause I haven't for a little bit. Cause like there's been lots of like, you know, premium ones that cost more than most people want to spend. I'd like to see, yeah, what can you get for 300 bucks or less? That's like a viable device. I think probably one of the ones uh, meant for education or something. But, you know, I remember the Asus EPC back in the day. It was like 2000, what, 2005 to 2008 or something. But I bought one for my wife at the time. I was like, holy crap, it is a $300 mini computer. And it was Netbooks, fine. Netbooks, baby, she Netbooks. It, <laughs> Netbooks. She used it for years. It was great. Really? And to me, more useful than Chromebooks ended up being. So anyway. Thank you so much for your email, Rohan, and uh, really appreciate this feedback. Um, Rohan is from Singapore, and it's really nice to know we have international listeners, too. Uh, folks, you can always drop us an email at podcastandgadget.com. And also, you don't have to email to us. You can also leave us a voice message or something, and we will work it into the show. Just leave a voice memo on your phone. Let's move on to what we're working on right now. And honestly, I'm just trying to juggle a whole bunch of stuff that I have to finish before um, I'm off for vacation in August. And that, that's it. I'm trying to cram in a bunch of stuff. I'm going to be seeing Oppenheimer later tonight and hopefully write about that. I was about that. to ask if yeah. you've seen that yet. I, I missed my chance to see the press screening, so I'm just going to see it the soonest I can in theaters. And hopefully we'll have some coverage up on the site on Friday. Nate, what's up with you? Uh, I am going on vacation. So I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of wrapped up. So uh, I'll be off next week. And then it sounds like you're going to be off shortly after that. So our paths will cross again at some point. But um, I'll be looking forward to seeing if you publish anything on Oppenheimer. Uh, What about Barbie? Are you going to see that? I'm definitely going to see Barbie because we have to review it on the film cast at some point. So, you know, I'm doing Barbenheimer because I'm seeing Oppenheimer tonight. I'm seeing Barbie tomorrow night. Yeah, nice. I think, um, I mean, I love uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, so I'm looking forward to Barbie. I've loved everything she's done, so I'm yeah. sure it's going to be great. Yeah. I don't. So I any, still don't quite mm-hmm. know what it is, but I kind of like that. It's, yeah, it seems like a lot of things all at once. So anything else you want to shout out? You've, re, you've read a lot of books, Nate. What are, like, the top, yeah. you know, top handful of books you'd recommend from this year? Yeah, I was going to say that I have a stack of books right next to me. Uh, so and jealous. One of the yeah. ones I just finished is called Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. And the cover makes it look a little fluffy. It's it's a woman with a pencil in her hair and big sun, sunglasses. Uh, it's a it's a book about a woman in the fifties who is an outstanding chemist in all of the misogyny that she faces trying to to get heard. And she takes a really interesting path towards uh, becoming an authority in her field uh, via being a TV star on a cooking show, where she instead of being the like prim housewife that people thought they wanted to see, then she goes at it from a science angle because if you know cooking at all, there's a lot of science there. Um, And she like just goes for it and is like, this is what is scientifically happening when you make things and this is how it works. And it's just a really, I was surprised at how much I liked it. So that one I would recommend, Lessons in Chemistry. Uh, I also just read a book called Not Alone. And that's by 
That's by Sarah K. Jackson. It's an it's an apocalypse book, which I tend to be a fan of. Um, but you yeah, read I say, or see Station Eleven, Nate? Yes, and yes, and love them. I think Emily St. John Mandel is brilliant. Her last book, um, Sea of Tranquility, was fabulous. Okay. So there you go. Three book wrecks for me. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, podcast producer Ben points out that there is an adaptation of Lessons in Chemistry coming to Apple TV Plus later this year. That seems really, really exciting, Nate. Yeah. Yeah, I think that'll be great. It looks like it's starring Brie Larson. Uh, Apple TV Plus has a pretty good track record at this point. So my hopes is that they will uh, you know, do this one justice. But I imagine it could, given the star power behind it, be another breakout one that hopefully gets more people to read the book as well. For sure. Uh, I mean, Apple TV Plus is a, d- has done a good job of uh, just making things that are good, like, right, good yep. enough, maybe not always yep. great, but good enough. And uh, the let me see here. The person who is working on this uh, also worked on Jury Duty, Little America. Uh, he actually developed Little America with Apple. And I love that series. That series was fantastic. So I haven't yeah. seen it. We'll add it to the list. It is really good. It's the one about uh, immigrant experiences uh, in America, but it's fantastic. But thank you so much, Nate. I, uh, I'm i hoping, I'm waiting for the time when I have time to read again. Uh, <laughs> Nobody yeah. I know who has kids is able to, so I understand even, where you're coming from. Even before kids, it was just so tough. Uh, but okay. Thank you so much for your picks. And you also had some pop culture picks too, right? I had one uh, thing I've been watching, or I've been playing, excuse me. Uh, we love Katamari Reroll. Uh, it's the second game in the Katamari series that was released, I want to say around 2007, 2008. I don't remember um, anything they, good about this. Yeah. What? You don't remember anything good about it? Oh, man, those games were delightful. Highly recommend checking I love the first one. Out. Yeah. Yeah, the second one is just as good. It was still, the creator was still involved. Uh, it kind of expands to different levels you can play on. There's still like make it as big as possible, but there's a lot of other like interesting challenges. And the thing that I loved about this is that it hasn't been available. Like the original Katamari has been available for a while on different platforms. This one hasn't been re-released until now. So I just was excited to try it again after, you know, not okay. playing it for more than a decade. Where are you playing it? I'm playing it on the PS4 slash five, but you can get it on the Switch and Xbox as well. Does it still have like a super addictive like J-pop soundtrack? Like that's oh, the music is wonderful. It's not okay. as quite as good as the first games, but basically any any Katamari game, the soundtrack is a standout. Yeah, I remember uh, after Katamari, I had like a bunch of music soundtracks uh, on a disc, and I would play it in my car and just playing little like Rolling Shining Star. Yeah, in a car, just it it it's very incongruous, but it works. Yeah, I have the score from the first game on vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, i'm that guy of course you do check out uh i think it's 8-bit big band that did a really great uh big band rendition of shining star oh that so sounds great it's really good my pick is justified city primeval and uh this one is for fans of justified or fans of just like great uh detective stories or noirish stories this is a reboot of justified which was the timothy oliphant series that uh, ended in 2015 i loved justified to be to be honest especially early justified i kind of honestly just I stopped watching maybe like season three or four because there was just so much other TV. So I have over the last month been binging the last bits of Justified that I haven't seen and just jumping into this new one. It's good stuff. Timothy Oliphant. Maybe. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask you, where's the old one and where's the new one? The old one, it's all on Hulu right now. So the old one, all the entire series is up there. The new series is a Hulu series, uh, maybe technically AMC, but it's all showing on Hulu right now. 
And this follows up with Raylan Givens, uh, Tim- Timothy Elephant's character, I think about maybe 13 or 15 years after, because, uh, you know, a big plot point is he has a kid early on, and I think the series ends with his kid basically being, like, um, in daycare or something. So, like, now his kid is a sassy teenager, played by his uh, Timothy Oliphant's actual daughter. And, uh, yeah, she is very good, actually, and he he just, like, slips back into this role so well. And the man has been typecast as, you know... Um, cool cowboy man like he even did it in in uh star wars when he popped up in the um was it like the what do you call it the boba fett-esque armor just the way he like leaned i was like oh god damn he didn't even take off the mask he didn't say a word he just like <laughs> leaned in the door he's like that's timothy oliphant um so yeah he is just so typecast and he seems pretty fine with it he's very good here this is a very good series it moves from harlan county i think that was tennessee or kentucky uh to detroit so it's more of like a city uh, story. Uh, he's trying to chase a ruthless killer played by Boyd Holbrook. Um, Boyd Holbrook, if you want like a slimy villainous man, like he just pops up everywhere. He's in Indiana Jones. He was in similarly Logan. typecast, but in a similarly in a way that typecast. He kind of gets into yeah. perfectly typecast. Anyway, I'm really just enjoying the new Justified. I was worried they were just kind of be going back to the well and it being a little not as good as the first series, but no, it's very good. I think even stronger in some ways. So. Yeah, check out Justified City Primeval on Hulu. That's it for this week, folks. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Alman. You can find me online at, at Devendra on Twitter. I'm still on Twitter a bit. At Devendra at Mastodon.social and uh, you know at Devendra on Blue Sky. I am on Threads. You can find me there. I do not plan to be posting on Threads, so that's just me. Nate, where can we find you? Uh, I, unlike you, am planning to be on threads a bit at Nate Ingram is where I'm at there. Uh, I have more or less shut down my Twitter presence. Um, so I'm, you know, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I suppose, in this case. I'm on Blue Sky. I just need to spend a little more time getting set up there. So I might uh, do that as well. Nate Ingram at Blue, um, on Blue Sky as well. Cool, cool. I think we've talked about this a bit, but it does seem like our social media communities are just splitting up and going to different places so i have followed people to mastodon that's where the tech people are and uh, cybersecurity people there's a lot of good techie folks there and blue sky is where a lot of media people and entertainment people i follow went to so if the media people are on um blue sky and the tech people are on mastodon does that mean the people on threads are just basics i use that word with sherlyn when threads started <laughs> it was like oh all all threads needed to do was exist and Sherlyn was like mm-hmm. i'm there Give me the cloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, we miss Sherlyn. Sherlyn has been in super busy, so that's why she's not here this week. Uh, but yeah, find Sherlyn on threads. I'm sure she'll appreciate the follows and the engagement. And as always, folks, drop us an email at podcastinggadget.com. Let us know where you want to be on social media. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts, including Spotify. Before we leave, here's my chat with the writer and director of They Clone Tyrone, Duell Taylor and Tony Rettenmeyer. This movie stars John Boyega, Jamie Foxx, and Tiona Paris as people living in a city who stumble upon a government cloning conspiracy that could have, you know, wide-ranging implications for their community. I think this movie is a ton of fun. It's kind of a cross between classic 70s exploitation films, but also science fiction and it juggles all that while being pretty funny and honestly saying something very topical as well. 
The Clone Tyrone premieres on Netflix uh, today, July 21st, and uh, it's well worth taking a look, especially if you're a fan of Jordan Peele's latest work, too. Here's our chat. Joel Taylor and Tony Rettenmeyer, thank you both so much for joining us on the Engadget podcast. Thank you for having us. <laughs> it's great to have you guys here. So I saw the movie a couple days ago, guys. My mind is still reeling from all the ideas and everything you're working with here. Uh, clearly, you've got a lot of genre influences. Can you tell us like what just what led to the invention of They Clone Tyrone? Yeah, um, I mean, I think really it was a, a question of a thematic question of like, you know, is there a difference between blame and responsibility? You know, and. I think that dramatic question, or excuse me, a thematic question, mm-hmm. kind of married with wanting to make a bootleg Scooby Doo movie. <laughs> so I, I think we, you know, we were really influenced by you know, you know the Truman Show, They Live, you mm-hmm. know, in, for, in terms of just tone, you know, Jackie Brown and Big Lebowski, Boogie Nights, uh, and so you know, we really were just trying to make something that we would want to watch if we mm-hmm. were just at a movie theater randomly and you know you you saw the poster for it you're like oh that's a cool poster and if you went in you know like, oh, oh i'm like i'm liking this so i think a lot of it was just us trying to make ourselves laugh at a lot of the times <laughs> tony anything you want to add yeah no i think that i mean try to make something thought-provoking but first and foremost make something that's entertaining and that we had fun we would have fun watching and that we would have fun at making. I like that this movie also, it, you guys aren't shying away from like the genre ideas and genre conventions. It's called They Clone Tyrone. We know what we're getting into here. Um, how do you, you know, how do you feel about the ability for genre films, sci-fi and horror films to tackle deeper themes too? Because I feel like this is a thing we're seeing more and more recently with Jordan Peele's movies, but this has been around for a while. I feel like we just haven't had the filmmakers haven't gotten the support. I'm thinking about to like Candyman, honestly, even back to like the first, um, you know, Night of the Living Dead. There's always commentary with these uh, genre formats. How do you guys, uh, you know, how do you approach that? Do you think this is a better way to deliver some messages so that audiences don't think you're like pushing didactic messages through their, you know, down their throats? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I think, you know, you use that word didactic. We use yeah. it a lot, too, because we try best not to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we we avoid being prescriptive, like the plague, for sure. You know what I'm saying? I think genre, it, it allows you to, you know, it, it lets the audience relax a bit, you know what I mean, and, and put the walls down a bit, right? And so, you know, you can have something thought provoking, but like entertainment can still be at the first, you know, the, the forefront of the mission, you know, I think, and, and genre just, you know, it's, it's a shorthand. So, you know, I think it allows you to, allows you to slide, you know, ideas, things that, you know, uh, things that might be like percolating in your mind in a way that like is a little more digestible, you know? Yeah. And I think genre gives you sort of, it, it comes with like, pre-established conventions and so you can play against something mm-hmm. and the audience usually knows you know whether they consciously or unconsciously like know the sort of limits of each genre and so they can tell when you're playing against that and like in playing against that you can you know be talking about something thematic tyrone has an aspect of like meta-ness to it that i don't want to like say and, and spoil but like sure, sure. It, it comes from playing against 
there there is sort of a deeper thematic message in it and in, in playing against the genre that it presents itself as. I also want to talk to both of you about uh, Mr. John Boyega, who I think is a star in this movie. But I also remember the first time I saw him was in Attack the Block. And at the end of that movie, when everybody's chanting Moses, Moses, I was like, this guy is going places. Like, I want to see him in all these movies. I want to see him in the biggest franchises. He had Star Wars. I think Star Wars did him a bit dirty, to be honest. Um, But he's gone to do like many, many like serious, uh, really, really fascinating dramatic films too. Like he did a small axe with Steve McQueen. Can you guys talk about how he embodied different versions of this character that's being cloned? And you can avoid spoilers. You know, there's stuff towards the end we don't have to talk about, but he clearly had to like look at this character in several different ways, right? Well, John, uh, I'm trying to not spoil something. Yeah, there, there's like one big one. I, we don't need to spoil. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say something that, uh, uh, and Joel, you can elaborate on it, but, uh, um, you know, John Boyega in the movie plays uh, a drug dealer, mm-hmm. you know, and that, talking about our question that came before, sort of like going into genre uh, uh, conventions and stuff, There, are, there is like sort of a certain... Um, like movie convention of like what a drug dealer is and, and what the sort of like psychology of a drug dealer is and stuff. Um, and John Boyega through Joel's direction was able to do it in a way that uh, at least for me, like was something that I hadn't seen before, you know, mm-hmm. rather than this like alpha dog, violent, you know, street dude, Joel had him play this sort of uh, a dude that was like tired that had this kind of like, uh, inner like ennui to him. There's a world weariness there. Yeah. Yeah. And boy, and, and again, like trying not to spoil anything, there is mm-hmm. like kind of a, a story reason for that and everything. But he he was able to like I say all this to be that like to say he was able to take a character that we've seen a thousand times and twist it in a slightly different way uh, that had a lot of like resonance to it. And I think that was like a credit both to Joel's direction and his ability as an actor. Tony, Tony's downplaying this because I mean, <laughs> Tony, it's it. The character is also, you know, scripted this way, mm-hmm. you know. So like, don't let Tony fool you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Tony is as middle in the character as anybody else. I think, you know, and more so than my direction, it's really John bringing that out of the character, right? Like he's a more mm-hmm. stoic character on the page, you know, like. And John, you, you can't direct someone who has natural warmth. Okay, be warmer. Like, you know what I mean? He is warm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He is funny. He has dry humor. And he brought all that to the character, you know, in spades way more than we imagined we could have imagined it would be. You know what I mean? Like, he, was, he made us laugh. And, like, you know, even when we were just doing takes like he would make us laugh you know what i mean and and, in dramatic moments and areas that were absolutely not scripted to be comedic but he would do things that were you know uh acerbic you know what i mean like he he has this dry wit that's you know uh (laughs) it's sneaky it sneaks up on you yeah (laughs) um and he has so much like just like grounded so much of it, such a grounded energy, you know what I mean? That he, he really, you know, he takes all of these disparate 
sides of himself in this movie um, mm-hmm. and gives each of them something that feels unique, but also grounded in, in their own, in its own way. Right. And I think that's, that's just a testament to how amazing of an actor he is. Have you guys seen uh, Breaking, which was the other movie he starred in the summer? Of course. Yeah. Incredible. Our, our good friend directed that. So Abby Corbin uh, went to USC with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we were actually uh, there at the same time as Abby. Um, and so it was awesome seeing. And again, it's like totally different John. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, he still has that commanding presence. You know what I mean? He still has that sense of authority, that weight, you know. He killed it. I love that movie. Yeah, I love the like even even the uh, like outside of our movie and the actual like act performance work. I like the like series of choice, like we mentioned the choices John makes in his career, like from going from the biggest movie that you can do, like a Star Wars movie, to now like he seems super like in, in intentional in picking roles that are very very different from each other. Yeah, you know, like the yeah. character in Breaking, which I think. If I'm correct, is like the movie he shot. Did he shoot after or before Tyrone? After. Uh, after. On one side, like very, very different from Tyrone. Like completely, or, you know, from Fontaine. Completely different, you know. And I, I think just, you know, as, as uh, just like a, a fan of like Hollywood movies and stuff, I like that he's choosing something. He's continually choosing something very different than what he's done before. Yeah. He's, I mean, like I said, he, you know, he can always step into that Star Wars role, and you know, like I think he could easily lead a Star Wars movie, and fans would love it. You know, hopefully, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, hopefully, right? Like, <laughs> so, I mean, he has. It, it kind of reminds me of Robert Pattinson, you know. What I mean, in terms of like, can hit you with the the triple A blockbuster. It's true, it's true. And he could do the Cronenberg, yeah. And he could do the Cronenberg yeah. with us on a little weird movie, you know. So come get mm-hmm. weird with us for a while. So, like, <laughs> something that's super dramatic. i'm i'm waiting for the john boyega going totally weird kind of movie i think that would be a lot of fun i don't i don't want to like ignore the rest of the cast either too i think um both tiona paris and jamie fox bring a lot to this role or to this movie i also want to say it is um great news to see like jamie fox out in public too because i know he was sick for a while here in atlanta and people were really worried that, yeah, who knows what was going to happen to him. But he seems on the mend. Can you guys talk about just what they brought to the film, too? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, Tiana is just like, <laughs> she is a beast. Like, she she was, like, we wanted her, like, from the very beginning. In terms uh-huh. of, uh, from the, the initial round of casting, like, we, we circled Tiana just because I loved her work all the way back to Batman, you know, uh, Don, Don, like, uh, <laughs> and like, she has, you, you have to have a crazy amount of charisma to be on the screen with Jamie Foxx and to mm-hmm. go like, you know, blow for blow with Jamie Foxx. Like she has an insane amount of charisma. Like it just oozes, she like oozes star power, but she's also like a wonderful dramatic actor, you know, and so she can balance you know, I think the one thing all three of them, you know, we, we were so fortunate that they all were like game to balance like the comedy with the with the dramatic parts of the film, you know what I'm saying? And and, and bring like, you know, like again, this groundedness, because I mean the type of satire you're playing with, like it can easily get unwieldy if the characters aren't grounded. And yeah. so she's she's such a grounded actor, but she has so much like 
power force like vitality in our performance and not just this movie you know um that you know i, I don't even have to say anything about it. you we all know what jamie is doing you know he can roll out of bed and, and kind of do anything he wants he's really a savant like I'm, I, I'm, I, I think he's one of the greatest actors of his generation so you know it's like it's it's really fun to see him do this yeah you know and so obviously jamie just you know he <laughs> i mean he brought stuff off camera like in terms of just like his intuit his intuition you know what i mean just knowing like the vibe he did a comedy show one day and we had a bad set and like a bad day um, and it's going sideways and we hear all this laughing in the parking lot and jamie is doing the show for like the background actors and it was just people off the street we shooting on location so you know a bunch of people off the street we all just laughing he, he's literally doing a comedy show in the parking lot of, of like a beauty salon and you know what i mean like and that was just him understanding his role because like he's naturally going to be a leader on the set because like i mean we look up to him that john and tiana look up to him right like you know we all look up to him you know and so he kind of understands that like you know he's like the elder statesman on the on the on the set right and so he took that responsibility like you know seriously in terms of just like doing what he could to like keep morale up. So it goes beyond the screen because it kind of, what he does, you know, his talent as an actor kind of speaks for, you know, he, the man has a best actor Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. he does. Like, yeah. We, we, we joked, we were like, it should say featuring Academy Award winning. Like when you put the, it should be there in the trailer. Yeah. Academy Award winning. <laughs> like, you know, it needs to say that. <laughs> like, as the pimpiest pimp you'll ever see. Like he's just, he's having so much fun too. He's on this rain. <laughs> now you have a slick charles <laughs> moving forward i'm wondering like um are both of you planning to stick with uh science fiction and genre for your future projects is there anything you want to talk about or you know are you planning to change things up a bit i think in our ideal world every new product is something completely different mm-hmm. you know kind of that kubrick kind of model of like you know hit them with something that they didn't expect after every movie yeah. Um, I think we love sci-fi because we love world building, you know, and that kind of goes hand in hand with sci-fi. Uh, but I, I don't think it, I don't think we're too like prescriptive with genre, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's, it's whatever we can imagine ourselves like having fun doing uh, for however many years it takes to make it. Those are my favorite types of filmmakers, like uh, Danny Boyle. I feel like he will never make the same type of thing twice, except for Train Spotting, and even that ended up being pretty good for him. So that was good, uh, but good to hear. I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys work on next. I have a couple tech-related questions for you now. Um, you're both young creative types, and I'm wondering how do you both live with technology? Like, what are the gadgets you rely on in your life? And you can't say your smartphone because we all rely on our smartphone. So it's like, what what is it? that helps you do your work these days? I'll say one that is mm-hmm. probably pretty relevant to the current time and uh, obviously uh, relevant to the writer strike that's going on right now. But in terms of chat GPT, you know, I've come to like, when I write, I have it pulled up next to me. Huh, okay. I don't use it for, uh, let's say creative. I, well, I use it for one creative purpose. And which okay. I'll, I'll talk about it. But usually it, it is a great sort of, um, uh, use uh, as a as a highly effective search engine. It's mm-hmm. great, you know, and it can help with anything from like if you have a quick question, like, "Hey, are there jungles outside of Bangkok?" It'll tell you right away. Or it's like, "Hey, I need some common like you know Korean names." It'll give you a list. 
in a way that Google will too, but it's just right. faster. So it's right. like, it's less of an interruption in terms of the creative process when you're actually trying to write, you know, it really is like talking to someone creatively. I've used it a couple of times for concepts or ideas, but I use it, um, you know, nothing against the, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm the, uh, you know, the, uh, the dude on the horse that's saying like, you know, cars will never replace us mm -hmm. or whatever, but like, at least in its current iteration, I don't think it does creative idea generation very well. So if I have a concept or a scene, I might type in the log line to that concept or scene and see what it comes up with. And I know that like, if I see something there that I was coming up with as well, I consider my idea bad. Cause I, I consider my idea is like, Oh, that's, mm -hmm. that's, it must be a cliche way to so go. Generic, or too, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or too expected of a way to go. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's almost using it, I think, as a, as a um, uh, canary in a coal mine for like cliche or generic ideas. That's really you know, Maybe that will change, you know, like yeah. I, I'm, I don't know if like, um, I can't say what the future is. I'm not, you know, uh, I don't know that enough, but at least currently right now, that's how, that's how I interact with it in terms mm -hmm. of the creative process. That's cool. I mean, that was such a good answer. I feel like the thing that I say will make step down. So I'll, just, <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say my, uh, you know, uh, my, I, I use, uh, I'll go with like my PS5 and my Steam Deck. Well, okay, that, that's a good bring up there. Uh, so you're a Steam Deck player. How do you, how do you feel about that? Because that is so different than, you know, the older consoles, like we are seeing so many of these handheld gaming PCs now. Are you into that trend? Uh, yeah. I mean, like I'm, I'm, I'm originally went to school. I wanted to do video game design. Joel's nice. played, nice. Joel's played or, or seems to know about every game that's ever been made. Oh, I would love to see a game from both of you. So that's, that's cool. That's good to know. I, uh, you know, I, um, uh, I finally bit the bullet, you know, cause I was, I was going to get it. And I was like, I'm just going to get it. Cause I'm, <laughs> I've never played modded moral win. Okay. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm going to, if it kills me, I'm going to play a mod at Morrowind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I'm like, let me just go ahead and get a Steam Deck right quick. Um, I've actually been playing Hot Five Rush on it. <laughs> but uh, no, nah, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's, uh, I got like, I'm looking at like Metal Jesus Rocks on like, <laughs> like reviews, like, you know, video games and mm -hmm. uh, crazy video game collection too but he, re he reviews all these like you know kind of indie consoles and like i'm fascinated by you know uh, as much as Actually, many emulators as i have had and as many ways i can play it i'm always still like yeah looking for new ways to the, the steam deck is the kind of like jesus device that can do everything if you're smart enough to know how to get those emulators in there so yeah i mean you know you get to like a a nice terabyte like like uh uh sd card mm -hmm. uh, and you kind of do whatever you want on it and you can still hook it up to tv and like actually play games like a console too miracle device yeah, um, just like a, a switch i got mm -hmm. I, I was playing Zelda. actually mm -hmm. our, our, the production company's set <laughs> gift to Joel at the end of production was a ps5 <laughs> so that's how very nice is. oh yeah see it's a i guess mm -hmm. i can't see but it's a big <laughs> tyrone oh that's cool i see that i see that Oh, that's lovely. The little uh, PS5. I was literally playing uh, Tears of the Kingdom like right before. This is great. This is great. I, I love like the newer generation of filmmakers to have like, we all played video games. And I think that was something that wasn't quite there 
uh, for some of the previous generations, which maybe explains some of those video game movies. So, okay. Storytelling in, yeah. in indie games, especially, is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, there's something, I don't know, again, I'm not, I don't know enough about the world, but it seems like indie games are going in through that explosion that, like, movies did in the late 80s and 90s when all, like, the price of making movies went way down, and so the creativity went way up. Yep. Uh, but there's some of these indie games that are just, like, true, like, works of art. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I, I even think back to, like, getting to the end of Brave and, like, yeah, in reverse time. Going backwards, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, you know what I'm saying? Like I, it, it still sticks with me, and I think like, like kind of to Tony's point, you know, there's, mm-hmm. it is art. Like it sounds like I, I would not be surprised if you guys come up with a game project eventually or something related to games. So that sounds super cool. Last question for you, which is a bit of a thought experiment. So you all know Mad Max. You kind of know the world of Mad Max, and what happens in that franchise is basically there's an apocalypse, right? There's an EMP or something. Technology stops. We have to live with what remains, you know, all the cars and devices and everything. Um, if you had to pick one thing to help you live through that Mad Max apocalypse, what would it be? I got, I got it. Wait, does it have to be? Okay. Well, whatever you want. Uh, so I actually want to do this. I, I've watched a lot of uh, Doom's Preppers videos of okay. people that yeah, build yeah. these little like cherry pie computers in a in a pelican case and they load all of wikipedia on it because you can download all of wikipedia oh you'd be like the oracle in the future yeah i i have no other useful skills man i don't know how to build a house so i gotta like earn my little can of peaches some way in the apocalypse <laughs> yeah i mean tony keeps saying all of the most <laughs> i thought about that one I know, I was like, that's about- a good idea man <laughs> you gotta have that you're ready for that yeah yeah <laughs> Boy, that's that's the funny part. We talked about this. That's why. Yeah. I mean, I'll go. I'll go a little bit. Uh, because it's funny. I'll go a slightly different. I would actually mm-hmm. say something like a uh, something like a Steam Deck or like something where I could load every sure everything on. It's a computer. You could do whatever you want with it. Yeah. Tony has all of the human knowledge uh, loaded onto you know Wikipedia, so we can start farming again. We can you know we can get irrigation going again. We can just get society up and running. And someone needs to preserve the art, <laughs> you know, something, yeah. the art. So, you know, you get a, get a steam deck, get the biggest, you know, biggest memory you can, you can put in that thing and get every emulator, get as many movies, get as many albums, you know, download them on there. So you could, that way you can rebuild society <laughs> from the art side and like from the, you know, from the uh, city planning side. Hey, that's what they say in uh, Station Eleven. I was know, just gonna recommend. Yeah, have you guys yeah. seen Station Eleven? Yeah, yeah. Survival is not sufficient. Survival is not sufficient. Yeah. So, and the whole point of that—that's a post-apocalyptic story where art and our love of art is really the thing that keeps us going. So, I think Joel, you just kind of landed there too. So that's fun. Thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast. Where where can we find you online these days? Are you guys on social media among the many many different services now? Uh, <laughs> not really i would recommend it i would recommend it for both of you just because i think people are going to be searching for you and wanting to hear from you so yeah problem man mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, people searching for you i get i get antsy man <laughs> i don't uh yeah i mean i made a i made a twitter like when it came out yeah like, yeah yeah Instagram when it came out but they fell into like disarray and disrepair mm-hmm. and disregard and so like they're just on the internet somewhere um you know i still i still have my instagram but it's like 
I haven't posted it since like 2013. I mean, you guys have been busy too. You've been doing apparently on a lot of projects from what I can see on IMDb. And I've just been playing video games. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, you know what? Hopefully, uh, Tony, anything you want to shout out? Uh, No. The same. I mean, hopefully, yeah. hopefully they get to. Hopefully, this movie does well, and we get to make another one. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking like where where would be your platform of choice? Because I think people will see this and want to know what you guys are up to and what you're thinking. And uh, yeah, it's it's good to talk to those fans. But uh, Joel, Tony, thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Man. Thank you, man. Thank you.